Matthew chapter 28 this morning. What a blessing it is to serve a risen Savior. We were talking in Sunday school. We were teaching through the book of Galatians. We made the comment this morning that heresy inevitably has more ardent adherers than truth ever does. You find a heresy in the folks that uh, adhere to it, why, they'll, they'll kill for it. Uh, they'll be killed for it. And part of the reason they do that is because they feel like they've got to do that to validate what they believe. I'm here to tell you that uh, in serving a risen Savior, whether I believe that or not, He's still risen. He's still alive. And uh, we don't have to go and... Uh, Looked, and of course, we don't even physically have to go to Israel and, and look. We have the record of Scripture, but we're not going to try to look at great signs and wonders. But we're going to look at an empty spot this morning where the Son of God once did lie and look at the message of the empty tomb. You know, whether we believe that or not, it's still true. I don't have to go out and cut off someone's head if they don't believe like I do. I know there is a just and thrice holy God that sits on the circle of the earth. One day they'll answer to Him. But what I can do is point to them and say that though your supposed God has rotted away many, many moons ago, my God is alive today. He is risen. He is alive. He is able to woo and to swoon and to move and to mold the hearts of men. I believe that this morning. I believe He's able to do that this morning. I, I don't know why you came. I could guess, maybe. I hope everybody came here out of the purest motive. But you might find it's not as much about why you came looking for Him this morning. You may find that He's come looking for you. And He longs to save you and to change your life. In Matthew 28, beginning in the first verse, the Scripture reads thusly, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There ye shall see him. Lo, I have told you. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again. The angel answered, and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I just humbly ask you to use this message, to use me, Lord, for your glory this morning. Confess myself incapable, insufficient, Lord, unable for the task at hand. Lord, I know you're able, and I know you enable, empower. So, Father, I pray that the power of the Holy Ghost would be in the preaching and on the preaching this morning. Lord, that the Spirit of God would have free reign and liberty to walk through these pews, to touch hearts, to do in hearts what we cannot do, Lord. 
We're not asking, Father, that, that we could help you. We're asking that you'd help us. Lord, we're not asking that you would allow us. Lord, we're just asking that you'd do it this morning. Father, that you'd convict those in need of conviction, encourage those in need of, conver- in, of, of encouragement, Lord, and that you'd abase those that might be lifted up in pride. But, Father, that in all things your will might be accomplished. Lord, I love you this morning, and I thank you for loving me. And I ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to go all over the world, you would find a vast array of supposed religious relics. Particularly in Europe, it's interesting to trace all of the various props and propaganda that have been used throughout history that have been claimed to have some sort of supernatural touch. I was watching a program the other day, and, uh, you know, there ain't much that's fit to watch on TV. Amen? But I was watching a program that was talking about the Third Reich, and it was talking about Hitler and his obsession with an object that uh, has been called the Spear of Destiny. It was supposed to be the spear that was thrust into the side of the Son of God. And it had sat in uh, the Habsburgs and placed it in a museum in Vienna. It had been there for many, many years. And uh, when the Third Reich came into power and Hitler came to power, he uh, when they uh, took Austria, he went and he took that Spear of Destiny. And he thought that that was going to make him invincible if he could grab hold of that spear of destiny. There are others, the Shroud of Turin and uh, all such nonsense as that. If, if, if you like the Shroud of Turin, God bless you, that's fine. I think it's a bunch of nonsense, amen? And uh, I think if we need to know what the Son of God looked like, we can read the Scripture to find out what He looked like. You'll find all sorts of little trinkets. I was reading one commentator that said variously over uh, all of Europe and, uh, and, and the East, you'll find various body parts of saints of this fella. There's about 26 known heads that are supposed to have been his and about 20-some-odd bodies. One fellow, they said there's about 56-some-odd fingers that are supposed to belong to him that are scattered across the continent and folks come and pray to it. You can find places in the world where broken people with broken lives and broken hearts, they gather in front of statutes no different than what sits upon your lawn. And they pray to them. They offer what little bit of money and what little bit of food they've been able to scrape together uh, to these idols in hope that that will appease uh, some sort of God that sits in the heavens. All over the world you'll find things that folks flock towards to try to find hope. Uh, there's a lot. You know, the Middle East is a boiling pot. And if you don't believe that, just turn on the TV. I mean, any given, any given newspaper will have six, seven stories that center around the Middle East. And part of the reason that uh, Jerusalem is so disputed is because the Muslims think it's their holy place and uh, the Jews think it is their holy place. And so both of them seek to go there to pay homage. I got news for them. It don't belong to either of them. It belongs to the King of Kings. That's the future side of his throne. Amen. But uh, they'll fight, they'll kill one another, and there's much debate. The Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, is another center of debate. All these places, these artifacts, these locations that people go to, to look upon them with wonder, and to look upon them in awe, and to give some kind of gift or homage or sacrifice to these things. We know that New Testament Christianity does not have any place like that. I don't, I'm glad. Let me tell you something. I love God for lots of reasons, but one reason I love Him is I don't have to leave East Tennessee to worship Him. Somebody say amen. I think this is God's country anyway. 
And uh, we don't have to travel across. I think it's a beautiful thing if you can go to the Holy Land. My pastor that I was raised under went to the Holy Land some 31 times. I think that's a wonderful thing. If you're able to do that, I believe I'd pack a weapon if I was going to go right now. But I, I think that's a wonderful thing. But it's good to know we don't have to do that, isn't it? It's good to know that we can worship God from here in East Tennessee, just like we could from the Holy Land. The reason is because it's not centered around a geographical location. It's not centered around shrines or trinkets. But it is centered around a risen Savior that is alive today, that hears the prayers of God's people, that hears the the penitent cry of the sinner as he uh, calls out in contrition to be saved, to be born again. And that living Savior is able to hear and to answer those prayers. And yet we find in the passage that we've read that there is one location that at least for this moment, at this period of time, the divine messenger from heaven pointed to, and he said, I would like for you to come here and look at this place, for it is of great significance to you and to the world. But the thing that is interesting to me as you consider that, is that the angel did not beckon them to come and look at something, but rather he beckoned them to come and look at nothing. was not the presence of something that was of such great interest to them, Rather, it was the absence of something that was of such great interest to them. And in fact, to this day, the empty tomb is about the only uh, tourism destination where people line up around the block to go see nothing. You know, when you consider that thought and the profound impact that something being gone or absent or having moved can have in your life, it is really quite fascinating. I was uh, studying and uh, reading and examining about the uh, the theft of the Mona Lisa. A lot of people don't know the Mona Lisa was ever stolen, but it was. In the early 1900s, it went missing for about two years. A uh, Italian immigrant by the name of per- Perugia stole it when he was working in Paris. He stole it from the walls of the Louvre. At that time, they did not secure them to the walls because the greatest danger was fire. And if a fire came, they wanted to be able to grab these masterpieces and pull them off the wall and try to get them to safety. A man by the name of Perugia became under the idea that Napoleon had looted the Mona Lisa from Italy when he was the emperor. And so he got it in his head he'd be doing Italy a great favor if he would go and uh, take this uh, painting and carry it back to Italy. You know, some folks just ain't got enough brains to walk down the street. Somebody say amen to that. About the stupidest thing that you can ever steal is a valuable piece of artwork. I mean, you ain't going to take that to the flea market. Amen. But he grabs this thing, and then he realizes what he's done. And for two years, it lay hidden in a Paris apartment. Well, during this time, it became global news that the Mona Lisa had been stolen. It was a famous painting even before then. It was a famous painting in da Vinci's lifetime. But never had it rose to the prominence that it did, surrounding the mystery of its theft from the Louvre in Paris. And they said that for miles and miles, lines would stretch along the Paris streets as people lined up to walk by and not see the Mona Lisa, but see where the Mona Lisa wasn't. And they would gawk at this wall and they'd look at the four empty naked pegs that adorned this wall. And they'd say, and I don't know what they get. I guess they stood there and said, yep, ain't there. Amen. But they would examine. They wanted to see, was it really gone? Well, as we look in the gospel account, I want you to notice four places where we might look this morning and ask ourselves, is he really gone from those places? 
The first by way of introduction is actually found in the Christmas story or directly following it. In Luke chapter 2, we have an account of the young life of the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, there's lots of folks, I hope you're not one of these, but there's lots of folks that only come on Christmas and Easter. So it may be the last time I preach to you, we was talking about Christmas. You know, we sort of like to imagine Him as the baby Jesus. There's nothing offensive about the baby Jesus. There's nothing threatening about the baby Jesus. It's always amusing to me that there's people that want to just get up in arms because somebody's got a nativity scene. I mean, that's a special kind of uh, of dense, amen? Like your nativity scene is really going to microaggress someone's uh, civil liberties. But there's always somebody gets up in arms. But by and large, society accepts the baby Jesus with no great struggle. It's easy to love babies. I mean, you love babies whether they're ugly or not, amen? I was just like that for adults. You lose a lot of grace in society when you grow up. You know, an ugly baby can get away with anything. These babies still, but but you're an ugly adult. You're just sunk in this world. Amen. You have a rough go of things. Trust me, I'm telling you a firsthand account. We don't have any problem with the idea of the baby Jesus, but it must be recognized that Jesus did not stay a baby forever. The Word of God tells us in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 40 that the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. If your images of the Son of God are merely the cherubic babe that laid in the manger on that night in Bethlehem, I hate to inform you, but the cradle is now empty. He is not the baby Jesus any longer. Certainly that served a function. He was robed in flesh. He was incarnate in this world. But God's intention was never for him to stay a baby. Uh, You know, we all sort of wish that when we've got babies. You know, you ever, you ever raising your baby and you thought, why can't they just stay a baby? That is the rambling delusions of a person that's not getting enough sleep. Somebody say amen to that. You don't want them to stay a baby forever. I mean, listen, I, you, you, don't, you don't want to have to be changing their diaper and feeding them, listen to them cry, trying to decipher what they're saying forever. We love them when they're babies, there's no question, but they must grow up. And it was no different with the Son of God. For the Bible tells us that there came a time when the cradle was emptied and the Son of God began to grow and to begin to wax in wisdom and in strength. And there's an unusual story given concerning his young life. It says in verses 48 and 49, you know, the Bible only gives us really one narrative about his young years. The Bible tells us that there came a time when Joseph and Mary would take Jesus to Jerusalem at the feast, and they would celebrate the feast. And this was not uncommon in these days. And Jesus was about 12 years old. And when they got there, they got busy with the feast, and they got busy with the festivities, and they lost Jesus. Now, before you get too judgmental, you ever woke up in time in your life and thought, man, I don't know where God's at. Well, that happened sometime, and it happened to them. And so they go three days' journey. They realize He's gone. They turn around, and they come back to try to find Him. And like busied and frantic and fearful parents, they're no doubt walking through overturning tables and baskets. They're trying. It wasn't a Walmart. They couldn't just get on the PA and, you know, Jesus, your party is waiting for you at the, you know, dressing rooms. So they're running around trying to do everything they can to find him. Well, finally, they happen upon him. He is in the temple. And as he is in the temple, he is uh, speaking to the rabbis and to the teachers. And, and you'd think he'd be asking them questions, but that wasn't how it went. They were asking him questions. And the Bible says they were astonished at the things that he was saying. It says in verse 48, when they saw him, they were amazed. 
And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. By, that, well, by the way, it's the only time that Joseph has ever called his father in Scripture. And it's, it's Mary speaking, and she's in the flesh. You say, how do you know? Well, you ever lost your baby? <laughs> she's in the flesh. She's fearful. She's frantic. She says, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And notice what Christ responds. And he said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business. I want to say that one of the reasons that the cradle was emptied is because God's will must be considered. You know why he didn't say a baby? Because it was not God's will that he remain a baby forever. God had a will. God had a work for him to do. The only reason he was ever robed in flesh is because it was in accordance with God's plan of redemption that he would become man and die as man for man's sins and in man's place. But God's will must march on. And when Mary comes to him and says, we've sought thee sorry, he says, how is it that you sought me? Did you seek me according to your will and your expectations? Or did you seek me according to God's will and to God's expectations. We see that God's will is considered. Why? Because God's work is commenced. Now, I understand that it was not uh, until some 18 years later that Christ began His earthly ministry. But Christ calls it His Father's business in this chapter. When He says, I stayed behind, I remained in the temple, I was asking questions and being asked questions, He says, this is my Father's Business, And you know what it does? It reminds us of the work that He came to do. Never before had there been any that was born to die in the way that the Son of God was. When He adorned that uh, manger in Bethlehem, uh, even at that very moment, there were gifts that were brought unto Him. Now, the gold is not uh, a big wonder, but the frankincense and the myrrh are quite interesting. For frankincense is sort of a generic incense. It was used in the priesthood, but it was also used in the burial process. But myrrh exclusively was used as an embalming spice. Now, I don't know that everybody understood what was going on that day, but I believe Mary understood what was going on that day. Because uh, the Bible says that a sword pierced through her her own soul. She knew what those gifts meant. She knew that this was laid up against his burial. She knew that this was prophesied, not that he would live and regain splendor and prominence and power, but rather that he would live to be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And she understood that God's work had to commence in his life. He wasn't, listen, he wasn't born to be crowned. He was born to be crucified. And the empty cradle is a testimony to that. I, I made no great secret of my uh, impatient tolerance of the Christmas season. Amen? If you're from around here, you know that. Uh, I, the, the, I, I, I like Christmas like on Christmas Day. But Christmas don't start on Christmas Day. Christmas starts on like yesterday. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, but I tolerate. I get through it. And uh, you, you pray for me for that. But as you go through the, the Christmas season, uh, the focus is always on Christ in the cradle. There's nothing wrong with that, except we must remember that He did not remain in the cradle. I want you to notice the second place with me. We fast forward through the teenage years of Christ. We fast forward uh, through the first uh, three and a half years of His ministry, and we come to the consummation and culmination of it. And turn with me to Luke chapter 23, for we come to the cross. Now, as we look at the early life of Jesus Christ, it cannot escape us that the cradle is empty. But many people, if they do not associate Jesus with Christmas, 
they do certainly associate Jesus with the cross. For we know that He came, that He might die in our place, that He might take our punishment, that He might make our payment. But there is great discrepancy, at least it seems there is in modern religion, as to what happened after He got on the cross and what the cross really meant. Well, let's hear it in God's own words. In Luke chapter number 23, Christ has died in our place. He has paid our sins. What happened after He died? The Bible says in verse number 50, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Now, you understand, let me give you a little bit of the timeline. On, on probably about Tuesday, uh, the Jews would have been cleaning out the unleavened bread out of their house. Uh, and uh, on Tuesday night, the Lord Jesus would have been instituting the Last Supper. He would have been driving that last little bit of leaven out from their fellowship, who was Judas. They would have gathered in the upper room. By the way, uh, that day in the Jewish culture, uh, the Passover lamb had been laid up. It was the last few hours that the Passover lamb would be alive. And it was the last few hours that the Son of God, before the cross of Calvary, would be alive. And he had gathered with his disciples. He had instituted the Lord's Supper. He had washed their feet. He had taught them and comforted them and encouraged them concerning the indwelling of the Spirit of God, concerning the place that he was preparing for them. As the evening comes to a a close, he looks to his disciples and he says, let's go down to the Mount of Olives. They begin to walk together and they're singing a hymn together and they go down uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. There, uh, the Lord Jesus prays three times. There, the disciples fall asleep three times. Judas comes in with his uh, band of betrayers, his band of soldiers and uh, his band of, of ruffians. He plants a kiss upon the cheek of the Son of God. And uh, Christ, when, <laughs> when, they, when they say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, He said, whom seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And He said, I am He. And when He did, the power of God pulsed through that environment and knocked Him backwards. That was a good reminder that He wasn't taken. He went willingly. They take Him into uh, the high priest Caiaphas's house and quarters. They have sort of a, what old timers call a kangaroo trial, a mock trial. They trump up charges and... You know much of the story. He goes to Pilate. He goes from Pilate to Herod. From Herod back to Pilate. The sentence is pronounced. Barabbas is set free. And they place a cross upon his shoulders. This was on Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday, Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. All across the land, the Passover lamb was beating its last heartbeats as they placed the Son of God upon the cross. For six hours he hung there. And uh, in the midst of it, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., he hung upon the cross. They mocked him. They scorned him. They reviled him. They spit upon him and spit at him. And at 12 noon, the Bible tells us that that a great darkness covered the entire earth. For a space of three hours, darkness veiled not just that land, but veiled the entire earth. And uh, folks, a lot of liberal commentators, they want to say, well, you know, that was a, a solar eclipse. Well, there's a problem with that theory. You see, the Jews had a lunar calendar. You say, what's a lunar calendar? Well, that's a calendar that starts with the new moon and it ends with the old moon. And uh, you know what's right in the middle of, you know, the new moon is when you got just a little bit of sliver and the moon is waxing. And then once you get on the other side, it's waning. And what's in the very middle? In the very middle is what we call a full moon. 
Well, Jesus was crucified at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which took place on the 14th day of the month of Bib. It was the equivalent of their month of April. You say, where are you getting that, preacher? It was right smack in the middle of the month. So if, if the Jewish lunar calendar begins with, uh, with the moon being a new moon, being uh, in between the, the, the sun and the earth in so much that there's no reflection on it, then it must have traveled to the 14th day of Abib all the way to the other side so the moon, uh, so the sun could be shining, reflecting a big, full, open moon on that day. You say, what are you getting at? It couldn't have been a solar eclipse because the moon was on the wrong side of the earth. No, it wasn't a solar eclipse. But it, well, I'll tell you what it was. It was a father's eclipse as he turned his back on the blessed sun. And in the midst of that darkness, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The only time in his earthly ministry that he ever called his father God and not father, denoting the severing that had taken place in our position and in our stead, and after which he realizes that all things are fulfilled. I like that. Realize, seeing all things are fulfilled, you know what he does? He says, I thirst. Because the Old Testament prophet had said that they would give him vinegar to drink. And so he cries out, I thirst. And they bring him uh, vinegar upon hyssop and lift it up to him in mocking scorn. And he partakes or he turns away uh, from it the vinegar that is placed before him. And all the scriptures are fulfilled. And you know what he said? He said, it is finished. And he looked towards heaven. The Bible says that he said, Father, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. And the Bible says, and he bowed his head does not say his head dropped. It says he bowed his head. After this takes place, the Bible tells us that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, he goes and he begs the body of Jesus. Jesus has died. His spirit has left his body. The Bible says this in verse 53, 52 and 53. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And the Bible says this, note it carefully, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never a man was laid, was before was laid. The Bible says, and that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. By the way, it's interesting that at the very time in which Jesus was dying on the cross, all across the land of Israel, Passover lambs were being slain. And on that night when he went into the tomb, all in Israel would be gathering around the table to partake in the Passover lamb that had been their sacrifice. The Bible is very clear that something happened after Jesus died. After Jesus died, his body was taken down. I'd point you to the empty cradle, but I'd like for just a brief moment to point you to the empty cross. Now, you can go all over in various religious institutions and find what they call crucifixes, in which you'll find a, a rudimentary visage of Jesus that is, that is fastened and nailed to this cross to this day. And that is the image for untold millions, probably in the billions across this planet. That is the image that they have of the Son of God. They see Him as beaten. They see Him as bloodied. They see Him as, as barren. And they see Him as bruised for their sins and hanging upon that cross. But you know, that's only half the story. He hung upon the cross, but the Bible tells us that to this day He is not still on that cross. His body was taken down from it. This implies two things to us. I would say, number one, it implies to us that all the prophecies were fulfilled. It is a staggering amount. It is a staggering number to consider the number of prophecies that were given throughout the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ. 
And every single one of these was fulfilled. The very jot and tittle of the law. Every single I was dotted. Every single T was crossed. There wasn't even a, a, a piece of punctuation that was missing from the fulfillment of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the prophecies that were given about Him. The Bible says this in John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled it, uh, a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. If you need any wonder about the authenticity, about the, the, the truth of the Word of God, look only to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ of every Old Testament prophecy concerning him. Mathematicians will tell you that beyond being improbable, it is at the common sense level impossible that one man could have come and fulfilled every one of these prophecies, and yet Jesus did it. Surely he must be the Messiah, the anointed one. I'd say it denotes that the prophecies were fulfilled, but I would say it denotes to us that the punishment was finished. When he said, it is finished, well, let me just read an accompanying verse. The Bible says this in Hebrews 10 11 through 14, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The Hebrews writer is talking about the old system of Levitical priesthood. And he's saying, you know, those priests, they stood all day long, must have been wearying work, must have been laborsome work as they were toiling, filleting the bodies of these slain animals and presenting them before the Lord God Jehovah. And every day they stood day in and day out ministering, offering sacrifices. But, you know, those sacrifices couldn't take away sin, you say, how do you know that? Because their work was never done. There's no telling the billions of gallons of blood that flowed from that mountain throughout the ages. But what does it say about Jesus? It says, but this man, speaking of the Son of God, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, one sacrifice, not, not a sacrifice plus your baptism, not a sacrifice plus your church membership, not a sacrifice plus your self-reformation. Not a sacrifice plus your greatest attempts at righteousness. He offered one, before you ever walked this earth, before you ever came into existence, this sacrifice was made, showing that it was sufficient apart from any and all works that you may try to add to it. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. After that, what did he do? He sat down on the right hand of God. When He paid for our sins, He paid it to the last farthing. When He paid for our sins, He paid for everything. Listen to how Isaiah describes it in the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Uh, this is the, the chapter that portrays Christ as the man of sorrows. And look down at verse number 4. The Bible says this, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughters, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. 
For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it, listen to this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see, listen carefully, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The righteousness of God, which had been offended at the rebellion of mankind, was all poured out upon the precious Son of God. He didn't die for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He tasted death for every man. He drank the very bitterest dregs from the bottom of the cup of God Almighty's wrath. All of the sins of all of humanity were placed upon His shoulders. And in that moment, He didn't just bear that sin. He became that sin for us. And the punishment from an Almighty God was poured out upon His precious Son. And at the end of it all, I like this, He never said, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Listen, He didn't die because He... He didn't die because He gave out. He died because He was done. After all of the sin of all humanity was placed upon Him, you know, He was able to look to heaven and say, Father, into Thy hands do I commend My Spirit. Never could the deluge of man's iniquity and unrighteousness in any way quench or stain or tar or besmirk the righteousness of God's precious Son. Literally all of hell and humanity was poured out upon Him, but His righteousness withstood the barrage of God's wrath and punishment. And when it was all done, He had exhausted God's wrath. God looked at him and said, I'm looking for more wrath to pour out, but there's none left. I'm looking for more sins to call into account, but there's nothing left. I'm looking for more of my punishment to lay upon your shoulders, but my darling son, there is nothing left. You've borne it all. You've became it all. You've paid it all. You've exhausted it all. And when it was all done, the son, he didn't say, I'm finished. He didn't say, I can't handle it anymore. He didn't cry, uncle. He didn't say, Lord, I can't do it anymore. But he bore it all and he said, it is finished. The punishment was fulfilled. It was poured out upon him. And the empty cross is record and testimony to the fact that that price was paid. John gives us another interesting note. Turn to John chapter number 20. We see a word about the empty cradle in Luke chapter 2. We see a picture of the empty cross in Luke 23. But as we come to John chapter 20, there's an oftentimes overlooked portion of the Word of God that I believe bears great significance to us. In John chapter 20, we have another account of the resurrection. It's interesting to juxtapose the different accounts of the resurrection. Because you'll find some interesting truths. The Lord will help us to tonight. We're going to preach on Peter and the message that God gave to Peter after the resurrection. And Mark carries unique details that only Mark carries because Mark got his account from Peter. And as we come to John's account, there's an interesting note that is found here. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple, John's speaking of himself, that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, 
and went into the sepulcher and see if the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. I would say there's a message to the empty cradle and a message to the empty cross, but I'd say there's a message to these empty clothes that were left lying there that day. What does it tell us? Use your investigative powers. Be a Sherlock Holmes, if you wish. And ask yourself, what does it tell us? It tells us, I would say, two truths. One that we will know immediately if we'll put some thought to it, and another that's known only by study and by learning. One is this. It tells us that he must of necessity have rose on his own. For had they stolen the body, they wouldn't have left the linen clothes lying. If the thieves had come in the night, they would not have taken the time to unwrap the the linen from him. And and surely it would have done them no benefit. He would have been easy and, and, and more palatable to be able to carry if they had left the linen clothes on him. And certainly the disciples, when they came, the disciples were the ones that put the linen clothes on him. They weren't going to take them off him. If he is gone and the clothes lie there, there's only one thing that we can gather from it. When he, he Listen, he went and stole and he was resurrected. And he resurrected not by anyone's help, but he resurrected by his own power. This is in keeping with what the Scripture tells us would happen because Christ said this in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. He said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. He said, and I have power to take it again. Christ said, no man's going to take my life from me. I will offer it willingly as a sacrifice. And when I rise from the dead, this is the difference. You see, there were a lot of, uh, there were, there was a lot of folks that were raised from the dead. But there's only one that ever rose from the dead. There's lots of folks that were raised from the dead. But there's only one that ever rose from the dead of his own volition, of his own power. Death, the Bible says, was not able to hold him. It was of his own power and ability that he rose from the grave. I'd say that the first thing it denotes is that he rose on his own. But then there's another interesting point. You've probably heard this before. If you've been uh, in any Easter sermons, you've no doubt heard this touched on it at times. But isn't it interesting that the napkin was left lying uh, folded by itself? That's unusual, isn't it? Now, if, if, if you would think if a, if a thief had unwrapped the, the linen clothes, that he would have just piled them all in the corner. Or you would think, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of OCD thief, all right, you know? And he's going to wrap it, and he just, he can't bear, he don't want to leave a mess in the empty tomb. You'd think he would have folded everything and laid it in a neat pile. But the Bible says that the linen clothes were lying, but the napkin that was about his head was folded and lying separately. You say, well, that don't make a lot of sense, preacher. Well, it does if you know a little bit of something about what they used to do and what their customs were in that time. In that time, of course, most people of any kind of, uh, of, of wealth and of any kind of class, they had servants that waited upon them. We talked a little bit last week about that place that the servants would stand where the woman with the alabaster box stood when they would lay down reclined upon uh, those couches upon their, their left hand and their feet would be bent backwards towards the wall. And there in that waiting place, the servants would stand. And they would stand there silent. They did not speak unless they were asked to speak. But they would stand there silently. That was the decorum. That's what was proper and appropriate at that time. But you know, like Baptists, oftentimes it took a little while to eat a meal. Amen? I mean, it, 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 it wasn't just a little rice and a little fish. And, I mean, you know, when they ate, they ate. Somebody say amen to that. 
And, and you know, that's how we are. If, you, if you're around here, you know eating sometimes comes in shifts, right? You know what it's like at Thanksgiving. Eating comes in shifts, you know. The first shift is when you've got to be polite, you know, and you just get one deviled egg and a little scoop of green beans and everything. Shift number two comes when everybody else is sitting in there and you sneak into the kitchen and pile up. That's when you eat your real meal. Shift number three comes after either nap or a football around our, our house. It comes after hunting. We go hunting on Thanksgiving Day and try to... I don't know why. I guess we feel like we got to shoot and kill and cook more food. I don't know, but we go out. But, the, you know, there's shift number three, the third shift. And the third shift, it comes with the shift differential. You get an extra dollar for working that third shift because nobody's around. You come in and you just start loading up your plate with everything. And eating comes in shifts. We know around our house, when Thanksgiving comes around, it don't pay to wash your fork. Just go ahead and stick it in your pocket and keep it close to you, because you're going to be eating again soon. Well, it wasn't very different in Oriental days and in, in the far in the, in the Near East. They had a custom. When they were gathered around, uh, they would oftentimes have their meal interrupted. They'd have tasks that they would have to do. And so they would, they would get up, and they would go, and they would do those tasks. Now, here's what they would do. If they wanted the servant to know, I'm done, I'm full, I'm not coming back, you can take my plate, you can take my dishes, you can go wash them, they'd take that napkin and they'd ball it up and they'd just throw it on the plate. And that was a good message that they're done, they're not coming back, they're, they're, they're gone, you can go ahead and just, just tuck things away because they ain't going to be back. But now if they just had to get up to use the restroom, or maybe they just had to go away to do a small task, and they were only going to be gone for a short time, then when they would get up from the table, they would take their napkin and they would fold it very neatly, showing that they were taking care because they were going to return back and finish the meal. And the folded napkin placed by the plate was a reminder to that servant that they were to stand at attention, to be vigilant, to be watchful, for at any moment their master could come back through the door because he was not done with his business at that dinner table. He was coming back. You see, there was more supper to come. And it was a reminder that he was returning soon. You see, it's strange to us when we read it. We think, why would the linens be laid, but the napkin be folded? But no doubt, to John and to Peter on that day, when they looked into that tomb, there was a stark reminder to them that the work, though the work of the cross was not done, the work of the Son of God was not done. He had not cast off His church. He was not done with them. In the midst of their heartache and heartbreak, they had a gentle but beautiful reminder that Jesus is coming back again. He was not done with them. He was not done with his church. He was not done with his disciples. He was returning again. It reminds us that he rose on his own, but it reminds us he's returning for his own. The empty clothes give us a beautiful message. And then finally, let's go back to where we began in Matthew 28. There's not much time left. I know how Easter is. You have eggs dying and, you know, all sorts of things. I won't keep you long. But I do want to point something out to you. In Matthew chapter 28, we've seen the empty cradle, we've seen the empty cross, we've seen the empty clothes. But we find in verse number 6, 5 and 6 of Matthew 28, the women have come to the tomb. They're expecting a body because who wouldn't? They were expecting a body because who wouldn't? We preached the graveside of Brother Don Butterworth yesterday and as we gathered beautiful afternoons, we gathered on that hillside. I promise you that there wasn't a person standing there that thought, wonder if he's really in there, you know? 
we stood beside that that casket. There wasn't a single one. I, I don't. Where Larry was there, I didn't. I didn't look at him. I didn't say, Larry, you think he's really in there? We knew he was. It's safe to assume that he's there where they have left his body. But you know, the Son of God is unlike anyone else. They come to the tomb expecting a body to be there. They don't find a body. They come looking for a serene, undisturbed gravesite. They knew it'd be undisturbed because there was a watch set over the place. Nobody'd sneak in. Nobody'd sneak out. They thought, and they come in. I mean, they they expect to come to a gravesite. They expect to uh, to, to exchange uh, you know politeness with the with the guards and ask them if they can uh, maybe adorn maybe some flowers, maybe embalm again if they will allow them into the tomb. I do not know what they expected. But what happened was most certainly not what they expected. Because when they get there, the Bible says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye. Now, that's reasonable, right? I'd be scared, wouldn't you? He says, Fear not ye. (laughs) For I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. I'd say we find a beautiful picture and message in the empty casket. I understand it's not a casket such as we're familiar with, but it's the place where the dead bodies were laid to rest. And here in this place, what does it tell us? The angel himself said, look upon this place and take notice of what has happened. What does it remind us of? Well, I'd say two things, and I'm going to say these in a hurry and I'm done. I would say, number one, it reminds us that the bully has been overcome. You know what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 2, verse 14 and 15? The Bible says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking of Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that evil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. You know what I think about when I hear that? I think about a schoolyard bully. Did you ever have a bully when you went to school? If you didn't, you probably was him. <laughs> and you'd go around on the playground, you know, and the old bully would come out. Buddy, he'd have them shoulders reared up, and he'd have his little minions. You know, they always had minions. And uh, weak folks follow weak folks that pretend to not be weak. Somebody say amen to that. And, uh, and, 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 you know, followed along. And, and there's always, there's prowling around. And there's just looking for somebody to look at them the wrong way. And you may remember the little children on the schoolyard, they'd keep their distance. They'd say if, if the bully was on that end of the playground, everybody would be on that end of the playground. They tried to stay as far away as they could, but still they knew that his shadow loomed along, and at any moment they could catch his attention and he could be on them. You know, that's sort of how I picture death. Isn't that how humanity lives? We pay uh, untold billions of dollars to doctors trying to stay on the other side of the playground. Every time you turn on, turn on Facebook, there's some new diet that's going to make you live 150 years, you know? I'll tell you, you ain't going to live 150 years because you spend all your time sitting around watching Facebook. Amen? That's, that's called irony. That's called poetic justice. Now, there's always some kind of new fad, some kind of new diet. You remember them. There's been a thousand. Why? Because man feels bullied by death. Death is always casting a long shadow of you over humanity. 
Even this day, we both, we, we've talked about people that have passed through death and people that sit under the shadow of death. Uh, all of our mind, all of our energies, all of our speech, all of our thoughts are occupied with people that are sitting in the shadow of this bully at all times. But what did it mean when the tomb was empty? See, when the tomb was empty, it taught us this, that now there was one. Though every single man that had ever lived uh, withholding Enoch and withholding uh, the, the Elijah, that they had stared death in the face and they'd lost. And Enoch and Elijah, it's not necessarily that they beat death, it's that God raptured them out before death could take them. By the way, Enoch and Elijah, neither of them were standing at the point of death when God took them. Every man that has ever stood toe-to-toe with that foe has lost. But here's one that did not lose. Every single grave, listen, once it was occupied, it never became unoccupied. But here's a grave that had been emptied. Every single person that had gritted in in the face and in the teeth of death had been bullied and cowed and beaten and subdued. But here was one that had conquered that great foe to all of humanity. The empty tomb tells us that death not only was beat, but that death can be beat. Death no longer need be a foe to us. It can now be a friend, for now we can see death the way God sees death. Death was never a foe to God, because God was never threatened by death. He has life everlasting. God was sitting on His throne before death ever claimed His first victim. God's never felt threatened by death. And now the Son of God has became mankind, partook of the flesh and blood, has died in our place and died in the way we would have died. He has subdued or or surrendered. He He has learned through obedience, even obedience unto death. He has been made a perfect captain for our salvation. But guess what happened? He then came out on the other side of it, a conqueror and a victor. Listen to what it says in Acts 2, verses 22 and 24. The Bible says this, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death didn't have enough authority. Death did not have enough power. Death did not have enough influence to hold the Son of God. Death had no rightful claim to Him. For the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And the Son of God did no sin, knew no sin, and in Him was no sin. And so death had to let go of Him. Death couldn't hold him. He, listen, he, he got to, death got to hold him for 72 hours, but then he had to set him free. For he had no charges to lay against him. And he was not able to be holding of it. I would say that it tells us that the bully has been overcome. But I'd say there's one final beautiful truth. It tells us that the bully has been overcome when we look at the empty tomb, but it reminds us that the blood must have been applied. I wish I had ten more sermons to preach this in, but I, don't get nervous. I know that I don't. But suffice it to, to say, let's read Scripture. The Bible says that the, all the things in the Old Testament tabernacle were a shadow of heavenly things. So that means there, there was, there was a, a brazen altar on earth, brazen altar in heaven. Table of showbread on earth, table of showbread in heaven. Not all, some of these things are, are symbolic, some of them are not. 
But all of these things were shadows of heavenly things. Now, the Old Testament priest, once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the Shekinah glory of God sat down on the mercy seat. And there was a piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. It was about the dimensions of the, the uh, remembrance table that we have here. And, and uh, there upon the top of that Ark of uh, the Covenant, in the middle, it was a box. And, and within it were a few holy relics or items. And on top of it, uh, there were two cherubims that sat perched on either side, and, and their wings covered their eyes, but their wings also pointed inward uh, towards the, the middle of it. And there was a place, there was a, a mercy seat that was on the middle of it. It was there that God would deal with mankind. It was there that God would sit down and meet with mankind. Now, if there's a mercy seat on earth, that tells me there must have been a mercy seat in heaven. And listen to what the Bible says about that mercy seat. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. He's talking about his body. Not, not made of hands, that is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered, one, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. When the Shekinah glory of God would sit down upon that mercy seat, He would behold that blood that had been shed, and He would stay the wrath and judgment from the nation of Israel for one more year. But always there must be another year come. Always there must be another bullock slain. Always there must be another sacrifice given. Because the, the comers thereunto were never made perfect by these sacrifices. Because by the blood of the bulls and goats, no sacrifice, no sin could be taken away. But the blessed Son of God, this is why I believe it's so important that we acknowledge the, the vicarious death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the miraculous and, and substitutionary uh, blood that He shed for us. I don't just believe it was His death. I believe it was His blood. Because it wasn't enough in the Old Testament to slay the, the lamb and to know that God had seen it. The blood had to be applied. It wasn't enough on, on that night in Egypt to slay the lamb and to say, okay, God, you know, we intend for this death to cover. The... No, the blood had to be taken and applied to the doorpost and to the lintel. It had to be the blood. And the Bible teaches us, it says over and over again, we're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold received from our vain conversation, vain traditions of men, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And he took that blood that had been shed. And it hadn't been, I know some of the songs say it was spilt, whatever you want to think, whatever you want to say. But he took this blood that had been shed for us. And he entered into the holiest of the holy of holies. He entered into a holy of holies, not made with hands. He entered into a place wherein never a priest had entered before. And he took that blood and he applied it to the mercy seat. <laughs> and now... <laughs> You know what the Bible says? It says, come look at a place. Come look at this place where God sat down robed in flesh. Come see this place <laughs> framed by two angels pointing to the place where the Son of God laid. And see that just as, <laughs> just as He laid here between two angels, His blood has been laid in heaven between two cherubs that point inward to the perfect precious blood that was paid for you and I. When I looked at the empty tomb, it reminds me that there was a work to do after he died, and that work was to ascend into the heavens and to place the blood upon the mercy seat.
for you and for I. What a message we have in the emptiness of Easter. (laughs) Aren't you glad that Easter is an empty thing? Easter is an empty thing because the throne room of God is an occupied place. The tomb is an empty thing because the, the, the throne room of God is occupied by the precious Son. Oh, what a Savior we have.